And I think I'm going to do something a little different today. I'm going to read this whole chapter. It's not a very long chapter. And we'll kind of get a feel for things here a little more. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace might increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into His death? Therefore we have been buried with Him through baptism into death, in order that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with Him in the likeness of His death, certainly we shall be also in the likeness of His resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with Him, that our body of sin might be made powerless, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, for He who has died is freed from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with Him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over Him. For the death that He died, He died to sin once for all, but the life that He lives, He lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey its lust. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law, but under grace? May it never be. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey? either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness. So now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Therefore, what fruit were you then deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the outcome of those things is death. But now, having been freed from sin... And enslaved to God, you have your fruit resulting in sanctification and the outcome eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Mason, would you lead us in prayer?
be looking today, Lord willing, at verses 11 through 13, but I've read this whole chapter in order to give a little more of an overview of where we've come and where we're going. Uh, Garrett pointed out to me last week that one thing I didn't do at the start of chapter 6 was to give an overview uh, ahead of time, and I'm not sure why I didn't do that. But I think in this particular chapter anyway, it uh, it is difficult, makes it more difficult uh, just logistically uh, as to how to introduce and teach the material without an interview, with, I mean, without an overview of this chapter. And so uh, I'd like to go back and do that right now, and hopefully it'll be worthwhile and helpful to us. As we've seen, chapter 6 begins with an objection or a misunderstanding that follows from what Paul has just said back in chapter 5 and verse 20. And what he said was this. He says, where sin increased, grace increased or abounded all the more. And Paul anticipates that somebody's going to say, well, let's just continue in sin then, that grace might abound all the more. And so that's the problem that he anticipates. And the thing I want us to notice here is that he repeats this problem almost verbatim in verse 15, and he says it like this, What then shall we sin because we're not under law but under grace? May it never be. So the very same thing brings it up in just a little different form, but he repeats the very same problem. And so chapter 6 can obviously be divided into two parts. The first part, uh, verses 1 to 14, the first section, Paul states this problem, what then shall we continue in sin that grace might abound? He states the problem and he gives the answer in terms of our union with Christ. Because of our union with Christ, we're new creatures, alive from the dead, alive to God, alive in a new realm. Or you could say it a little different way. Paul brings up the problem and he answers it by appealing to the realities of regeneration. When God justifies a person, he not only forgives his sin and justifies him, but he regenerates him. He makes him a new person. And so that's the first section, verses 1 to 14. Then the next section, verses 15 to 23... Uh, he states the very same problem in a slightly different way, and he answers it in a slightly different way. He answers it in terms of our having been freed from sin and become slaves, having become slaves of righteousness. Well, when were we freed to sin, freed from sin? When were we enslaved to righteousness? Well, again, that happened at the time that we were regenerated or at our conversion, and he says that in verse 17. Thanks be to God that though you were 
slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed and having been freed from sin and so on. So at conversion, we became enslaved to righteousness. So uh, again, the same answer in a different form. Uh, Shall we continue in sin because we're not under the law but under grace? No, we can't continue in sin because we've been enslaved to righteousness. So that's the basic division of chapter 6. But then if we want to get an overview of these first 14 verses that we've been looking at, verses 1 through 14, it goes something like this. Verse 1, Paul states the problem. But the thing I want us to know, want us to realize here is, is that he gives the entire answer in verse 2. He states the problem in verse 1, and he gives the whole answer to the problem actually in verse 2. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? That's his whole answer in a nutshell. But then in verses 3 to 10, he explains what he means by the answer. What's it mean that we died to sin? Well, verses 3 to 10 are an unfolding or an explanation of what he means when he says that we died to sin. What, what does it mean that we died to sin? Well, it means that we've passed out of the realm where sin reigns, out of the realm where uh, sin is ruling over us, and into the realm where grace reigns over us. And uh, we're no longer under sin's dominion. Its power to rule over us has been broken. Another way of saying it, our old self has been crucified. The person that we used to be in Adam has been put to death and dead and buried, and we've been raised up to walk in newness of life. Now, what's it mean our old self has been crucified? Well, it's the same thing he says in Ezekiel when he says, I'll take the stony heart out of your flesh and I'll give you a heart of flesh. I'll make you a new person. Or it's the same thing that Jesus said when he says, um, make the make the tree good and the fruit good, or the tree bad and the tree corrupt and the fruit corrupt. So a person that is a bad tree is made into a good tree. That's all. It's all he's talking about. It's regeneration, in other words. And so uh, God has put to death the old person that we used to be, and He's raised us up to walk in newness of life. And that's who we really are. Our mortal body or our flesh has not yet been redeemed, and sin still tries to reign in our mortal body. But that's not who we really are in our deepest self. On the deepest level, uh, we are new creatures, and we don't have to be defeated by our flesh. So verses 3 to 10 unfold and explain what Paul means in verse 2 when he says we died to sin. Then verses 11 through 13 are exhortations. This is what I want us to look at today. And he's saying this, in light of these facts, realize what's true of you and act accordingly. So uh, that's verses 11 to 13. And then uh, verse 14 is a concluding statement of fact regarding what's true of all Christians as a result of their having passed out of the old realm and into the new realm. So that's kind of an overview. He presents the problem. He answers it in terms of union with Christ. He reiterates the problem in verse 15, and he answers it this time in terms of freedom from sin and slavery to righteousness. 
both answers really have to do with regeneration. In this first section, he gives the problem and he gives the answer in a nutshell. We've died to sin. How can we live in it? And then he explains what he means about that we've died to sin. And then he gives us some exhortations and a concluding statement, verse 14, an assurance that sin won't rule over us because of what's happened to us. So, uh, maybe better late than never on that. I don't know. But anyway, we can get a little feel for this, how, where we've come from and where we're going. Now, <clears throat> with that introduction then, let's come back to verse 11 of chapter 6, which is the the uh, final verse that we started to look at last time. And this is what he says. The very first exhortation in this whole chapter is, even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God. And again, this word consider or reckon, I think in the King James Version, just means conclude or realize or count upon the fact. Count upon the fact that you're dead to sin and alive to God. It doesn't mean pretend. Uh, This is something that is true whether we believe it or not. Grace really is reigning in the life of every believer. Sin really doesn't fit us anymore. That's just the fact. If you're a Christian, sin really doesn't fit you anymore. And it really isn't reigning anymore in your life. And you really are a new creature, and sin really does go against what you want in your in your heart of hearts. That's just saying you're a new person. And it doesn't have power to rule over you anymore. That's all he said thus far. Now, all those things are true whether you believe them or not. And so he's just saying, in light of what's true, conclude that, you know, uh, Found your life on reality, the facts of what's true. Count upon the fact that this is true. So that's Paul's burden here. uh, It's true whether we believe it or not, but if we'll just realize and embrace the facts, there'll be much more freedom and victory and fulfillment in our lives. Eventually, because you're a new new creation, eventually righteousness is going to win in your life one way or another, but it can be much more enjoyable and greater blessing if you realize who you are and you begin to embrace that. That's all he's saying here. And it's the same burden that Paul has in several places in the New Testament. I just want to look at some of those here before we go on. Colossians chapter 3. Let's read that. Turn over there. Colossians 3. And starting at verse 1, If then you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth, for you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with Him in glory. Therefore... Consider the members of your earthly body as dead, and literally, if you have a marginal reading like mine, literally put to death or mortify the members which are upon the earth, the members of your earthly body. Consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. 
For it is on account of these things that the wrath of God will come. And in them you also once walked when you were living in them. When that's where your life was, that's where you fit, you walked in it. But you don't fit there anymore, you see. That's not where you are anymore. So then put them all aside, verse 8. Put them all aside, anger and wrath, malice, slander, abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another. Since you laid aside the old self, the old man, with its evil practices, and have put on the new man, who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. That's a new creation, you see. And you have put off the old man. You're not who you used to be anymore. You're a new person. You have put on the, the new man. And so, since you aren't that person anymore, then he said, act accordingly. Act like who you are. Be who you are. Realize who you are and be who you are. And so, he says, uh, since you have laid aside the old man and have put on the new man, then... Stop doing these things associated with the old life. Um, with that foundation, then Ephesians 4. It's another one. <clears throat> Ephesians 4 and verse 22. In reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old man which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new man, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Now, you see, he said back in Colossians, we already have laid aside the old man and we already have put on the new man. Now he's commanding them, do that. Put off the old man. Put on the new man. What's he mean? Put off the deeds of the old life and put on the deeds of the new life. In other words, be who you are. Verse 25, Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth each one of you with his neighbor, for we are members of another, and so on. So he says, lay aside these practices of the old life and put on the practices of the new life. But the verse I want us to look at, verse 23 be renewed in the spirit of your mind. That is, allow it to happen, to start thinking in a different way than you always thought before. And that's all Paul is saying back in Romans 6.11. Recognize, realize, consider yourselves dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God. And then one more passage, Romans 12.2. And that's such a familiar one. He says, Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you might prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And how does it start out? I beseech you, beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. He's going to talk about presenting our bodies here in Romans 6. So be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So let's go back to Romans 6 then. And... Verse 11, and this is really what verse 11 is saying. Realize who you really are. That's all it's saying. Realize what's true of you now that you have become a Christian. 
And that's the same thing as saying, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Don't think of yourselves anymore the way you always did think of yourselves because that's not true of you anymore. That's all he's saying. Realize who you are. And then verses 12 and 13, not only realize who you are, but act according to who you are. Be who you are. And so the New Testament teaching of growth in grace is realize who you are and be who you are. And that's really the foundation of the New Testament teaching, growth in grace. Now, this is something to think about here. Uh, occasionally, I remember years ago, I, I went to hear a man preach, and the, the key to the Christian life, to victory in the Christian life, he presented was confession of sin. You confess your sins to one another. He says that's the key. And there's a book that was written quite a few years ago called Continuous Revival. And what the key was is confession of sin. You, confess, you keep short accounts with God and with one another. So you confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. Now that's the key to growth in the Christian life and to victory in the Christian life. Well, what you ought to do, you ought to ask yourself as you're reading the New Testament, you ought to say, well, how much does the New Testament talk about confessing my sins to, to other Christians as the means of victory and growth and grace? What's the Bible have to say about that, confessing our sins to one another? And if you study through the whole New Testament, basically you'll come up with one or two verses in the whole New Testament about confessing your sins to one another. So you see, that can't be the key to growth in the Christian life. You see that? Other emphasis, some, some groups put a big emphasis on dealing with demons, casting out demons out of people. And that that's the key. Well, just go through the New Testament and see how much, like in these letters of Paul, how much does he talk about that? And you'll find it conspicuously absent. There's stuff about resisting the powers of darkness and fighting and so on, but that's not the key. And then there's others that say, well, what you need, and you're struggling, you've got a problem, what you need is such and such crisis experience. If you had that, then you would be able to enter into victory over sin. You need this crisis experience. And so you go to the New Testament, and as you're reading through the New Testament, just write down all the times that he talks to you about having a crisis experience in order to enter into victory. And that's not the burden. But if you get down to what is the burden, the burden is, look, realize who you are. And then just be who you are. And that comes up again and again. He says all these things. I mean, for example, in Romans... You go through all the book of Romans, you finally get to chapter 12, and he starts talking about presenting your bodies and giving yourselves to God. You see, after all the doctrinal foundation has been laid down, Ephesians, he lays down all this truth, and then he finally says, now walk according to this. Walk like this. And so, who you are is the most foundational thing, and the problem with us is, is we don't believe who we are. We've got in our head, first of all, many times you've got in your head, I can't get victory over this. That's a lie. You see? 
And the other thing is, is I really want this. This really is who I am. And that's a lie. You don't really want that if you're a Christian. And a lot of the problem is, is that we're not believing the truth about ourselves and we're not believing uh, the truth about what God has done for us in breaking the power of sin, and we're not being, we're not believing who we are, and we're not being who we are. And so here it is, right here. He lays down all this foundation. He says nothing by way of exhortation, and then in verse eleven, he finally says, "Now look, believe who you are, realize who you are, and believe it." Verse eleven: Consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God. And then in verse twelve. After you realize who you are, then be who you are. Therefore, verse 12, Therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey its lust. Now there's three things that I want us to see here. First one is, the fact that sin still tries to reign in a true Christian's life. It won't be able to. We have that guarantee in verse 14. Sin shall not have dominion over you or be master over you because you're not under the law, you're under grace. It won't be able to rule over you, but it still tries to rule over you. And that is an encouragement uh, to me because it means that a true Christian can experience all kinds of temptations and battles and conflicts with sin. And if that were not true, we would be in a miserable state, wouldn't we? The fact that you find yourself in a battle with sin does not mean that you're not a Christian. Being dead to sin doesn't mean that we're not affected by it anymore. It means that we're no longer in the realm where sin has dominion and rule over us. We've passed out of that realm. We've talked about this in former uh, messages that we've had. But the first thing to realize, sin... Even in a true Christian, sin will try to reign. It'll try. And so if you're fighting that and experiencing that, it doesn't mean you're not a Christian. Second thing to notice from verse 12, notice where sin tries to reign. He says, don't let sin reign in your mortal body. Sin is trying to reign in your mortal body. It's trying to reign in that part of us that has not yet been redeemed. And that's what the Bible calls the flesh. Now, that's encouraging too. Because the flesh does not represent the real me. It doesn't represent who I really am. Uh, Your flesh is just as corrupt as it ever was. But the flesh is not who you really are if you're a Christian. You are a new creation. You're alive from the dead, and your heart uh, is a new heart that loves God and righteousness. You see, our mortal bodies will soon be nothing but a memory. But the real you, who you really are, is who you'll be a million years from now. You see that? The f- I'm still being troubled by the flesh, but that is going to pass away in a very short time. But the real me is going to be here forever. And if you're Christian, the real you is the person that's going to be in heaven, alive in heaven a million years from now. Let me just try to illustrate this. Uh, this is an account from um, a little book by, by uh, Mrs. Lloyd-Jones called Memories of Sandfields. 
And there were some notorious sinners that were converted there under the early ministry of Martin Lloyd-Jones. One of them was named, his nickname was Staffordshire Bill. And uh, he was a total drunkard. Uh, he would he he would sell fish uh, from this little cart, and uh, every evening the neighbors would see his horse pulling him back up the hill. He'd pass out and fall back into the fish with his legs sticking up in the air, and the horse would take him home. And his wife would pull him off of the off of that cart uh, with him lying in the fish. And he became a Christian. And um, amazingly, he did not have any trouble with alcohol. He was delivered instantly. But there were other things that he had trouble with. Let me just read it to you. William Thomas seemed to have little trouble with the lesser things, nor with some of the bigger hindrances either. His drinking habit just left him with no effort on his part to deal with it. It had been a part of the whole of his adult life. There were not many days without drink playing a big part in them, not many evenings and nights when he was not totally incapacitated through alcohol. And yet, at his conversion, his desire for it left him, and it was never a problem in his Christian life. There were, however, other areas of fierce struggle, and heading the dark list was bad language. Staffordshire Bill was foul-mouthed so much so that even the toughest of his worldly acquaintances were sickened by him. One of the reasons why he always found himself left to his own company in some deserted corner of the place where they were drinking. Nobody wanted to even be around him. He was so foul. With his conversion came the conviction that he must do something about this. He realized that it was dishonoring to God and offensive to man. He must stop swearing and using bad language. But now he discovered that he was up against something that was too strong for him. He could not speak without swearing. He could not utter a sentence that was not peppered with oaths and blasphemies. He could not help it, and he could not stop it. The truth is that he did not know that he was doing it until the words were out, and then the realization that these horrible terms and words came from his own lips sickened and shamed him, and he was driven to a frenzy of despair and abject misery. It may seem strange that he never sought the help of a fellow Christian in this matter, but he was too ashamed, and he suffered for some weeks little dreaming that deliverance was at hand. It came about in this way. He was getting up one morning, gathering his clothes together to get dressed. But there were no socks among his clothes. He went to the bedroom door and shouted to his wife, I can't find my blank socks. Where are the blank things? As he heard himself and realized what he had just said, a great horror possessed him, and he fell back on the bed in a paroxysm of despair. He cried aloud, O Lord, cleanse my tongue. O Lord, I can't ask for a pair of socks without swearing. Please have mercy on me and give me a clean tongue. Now look at this. Who's the real man? The real man is the one that's crying out. He realizes what he said, and he's crying out saying, Lord, forgive me for this. I see that he's a new creature. Now, why are the words coming out? Because his flesh has run in that groove for years and years and years. You see the difference between... So, isn't it amazing that Paul does not say, therefore, don't let sin reign in you. 
He doesn't say that. He says, don't let sin reign in your mortal body. That's amazing. He separates you from your mortal body. The real you. Now, that's, that is something that we ought to take note of. That's important. And he says, now you, you're different. But sin's still going to try to reign. And don't let it. So he cries out, O Lord, cleanse my tongue. As he lay there and then got up from that bed, he knew that God had done for him what he could not do for himself. His prayer, his cry of agony was heard and answered. It was his own testimony that from that moment to the end of his days, no swear word or foul or blasphemous word ever again passed his lips. Hearing his own account of this amazing deliverance on a subsequent Wednesday night at the fellowship meetings is something that we who were there will never forget. His face wet with tears and a light with an inner joy and wonder, his faltering voice, broken with emotion, brought a warm wave of response from every heart. Now, in his case, God broke the power of this thing just in a moment, brought him into the reality of his deliverance. In many cases, it happens that way. Or sometimes it happens, just like with his drinking habit, it was broken immediately. But there are some things where... Where we have in our head, we are we we have it fixed in our head. I've got to be like that. That's the way I've always been. And Paul says, "No, that's not who you are now, and you don't have to be like that." And faith enters in, believing what God has done in you enters in, and you start to put off. You believe. You've got to believe first, and then you put put off those things. Uh, here's a person that's. Uh, always had a quick temper, and he comes from a family with quick tempers. And so he becomes a Christian, he gets in a situation where there's a lot of pressure, and all of a sudden his temper flares up. And what happens? Immediately, he's broken about that, he's sorry about that, he's contrite about that. And so who's the real person here? You see, again, the flesh goes in this pattern, but the real person hates that, he doesn't want that. And so, again, the distinction between who I really am and the pattern of the flesh. Now, back to Romans 6, 12, this is the third point. First one is sin still tries to reign, even in the Christian. Where does it try to reign? It tries to reign in your mortal body. And it's not just things like temper. I mean, it can be things like melancholy and depression. You know, some people are given more, even physically, they're given more to depression. And so you realize, now wait a minute, this is part of the pattern. This is the way my, in fact, maybe this is the way my family was. This is the way my mom was, or whatever. But the fact is, that's the flesh. The sin's trying to reign in my mortal body. But the next thing, the third point from verse 12 is this. We don't have to be defeated by the flesh. Verse 12, don't let sin reign in your mortal body. Isn't that encouraging? You don't have to. First of all, sin tries to reign. Secondly, it's trying to reign in your flesh. And thirdly, you don't have to let it reign in your flesh. Those are real direct points right here, aren't they? You don't have to be defeated by the flesh. You don't have to let it reign in your mortal body. Romans 8.13, if you through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, you shall live. That means you're able to, by the power of the Spirit, you're able to mortify the deeds of the body. And Galatians 5.16, this I say, walk in the Spirit, 
and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. That's a promise. Well, you know, that's the way I've always been. That's the way my family's always been. Well, so what? That's not the way you are now. That's not the way you have to be. I think uh, one of the most disgusting things that a professing Christian can ever say is, is that you'll just have to accept me the way I am. Well, you don't have to accept yourself the way you are. Aren't you glad for that? I mean, that we can change. The good news is I don't have to stay the way I am. I can change and I can grow in grace. That's what verse 6 is all about. That's why God regenerated us. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with Him, in order that this body of sin might have its power broken. That's the whole reason why He regenerated us. So we don't have to be like we were before. Even though the flesh still wants to run in the same patterns that it always did. I was listening to uh, part of the testimony of Bill McLeod and uh, was amazed at this. He said that before he became a Christian, he was so shy that he would actually pick out back streets to walk on in order to get to somewhere because he was afraid he'd meet somebody and have to talk to them. And God began to show him after he'd been a Christian for just a few months that he was called to preach. And uh, that caused a tremendous struggle because, you know, I am so shy. But see what's wrong with that? God's made you a new person. Now, a person that is just naturally outgoing doesn't become a recluse the minute they're converted, and a person that's naturally a recluse doesn't become outgoing the minute they're converted. But what happens is, even though the flesh might want to run in those grooves, you don't have to be bound by that anymore because you're a new person, and you start having your mind renewed. And so God calls Bill McLeod to be a preacher. And not just to be a preacher, but to preach to thousands and tens of thousands of people. A guy who's so shy that he doesn't want to talk to anybody. Now what happens? There's a renewing of the mind. And sometimes that really stretches and it really hurts. And you remember what Jesus said about the putting the new wine into an old wineskin? That new wine begins to ferment and expand. Well, if you're a Christian... He puts the new. He has put the new wine into a new wineskin. You're new, and when the wine starts to expand, like when God says, "Now I want you to preach now," and you're scared to death to even talk to one person, the wine starts to expand. But you know what Jesus said? New wine is put into new wineskins, and both are preserved. It's an assurance. I'm not going to let you pop. <laughs> And so, he said the verse that God used in his life was, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Well, that takes care of it, doesn't it? I know that I'm able to get up and talk to this group of, I think it was 30 people the first time. And he uh, he went on his way rejoicing, saying, God, we did it. We did it. <laughs> That's what Paul's saying. You're not that anymore. Kill the old ways, Colossians 3. Put to death 
the members that are upon the earth. Lay them aside, Ephesians 4, those verses we read. Put off those things. Romans 13, 14. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill the lusts thereof. Well, verse 13 then. Do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Again, three things here to notice. First of all, who are we really? Well, he says you are those who are alive from the dead. That's who you really are. And you know, when you first become a Christian, you feel that reality. You feel like a new person. You feel like you're alive from the dead. And you feel the, you have a little feel of the fact that you're not in sin's realm anymore. And you feel like you're never going to sin again. Until you do. And then you begin to realize how much sin still remains. And it's very common for a person at that point, the more you're overwhelmed by how bad, how much sin there still is, then you start getting this wretched sinner mentality. And a whole theology has grown up around the wretched sinner. You know, I'm vile, I'm worthless, I'm a wretched sinner. As one of the old Puritans used to sign his letters, the painted hypocrite. That's not what the Bible says about a Christian. That's not who you really are. That's a lie. What's the Bible say about who you really are? You're one alive from the dead. And there may be all kinds of stuff that God has to start dealing with and work to get you to become who you are. But who you are is not a painted hypocrite. That's not true if you're a Christian. Who you are is somebody that loves God. And the devil will try to tell you when you do something good that you're being a hypocrite. That's not true. When you do something bad, you're being a hypocrite. If you're a true Christian. And when you do things that are good, you're doing what you really are. See how different that is? That's be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Realize who you are. You're not a wretched, vile, painted hypocrite. You're you're a new creation alive from the dead. You're a new person. Your flesh is as bad as it ever was, but you that's not who you are and you don't you're different than your flesh and you don't have to let sin reign in your mortal body, you see. So, first point, who are we really? Second point from verse 13, the same one we saw before. We don't have to go on presenting the members of our bodies to sin. Notice what it says. Do not go on. Same as verse 1. Continue. Shall we continue in sin? When you were, before you became a Christian, you, you were enslaved to sin. And you had to present your members to sin. Even when you try not to, that's what you're doing. But after you become a Christian, you don't have to go on presenting your members to sin. Um, notice again that in order to sin, you have to use the members of your body. You say, well, what about bad thoughts? Well, try thinking a bad thought without using your brain. You can't do that. You have to use your members in order to, do, to sin. And so he says, now here's the thing. Don't present your members to sin. Don't 
Don't present your hands to sin or your eyes to sin. You've got to make a choice in different situations. And it comes down to individual parts of your body even. Don't do that. You have a good brain? Well, don't don't use it to conjure up evil things. To, to devise or entertain evil. So, that's the second part. We don't have to go on presenting the members of our bodies to sin. The third thing I want us to notice is this. The last half of the verse, the positive side, is not exactly parallel to the negative side. Look at this. Do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. So there's the one side, presenting your members to sin. The other side, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. So on the negative side, you have your members. On the positive side, you have yourselves and your members. Now, why does Paul say it that way? I think this is really good as something that Martin Lloyd-Jones brings out. And that's this. He puts it like that because the Christian is not able to present himself to sin as a whole person. He says, don't present your members. The most you can do as a Christian is you can present one or more of your members to sin temporarily. But you can never present yourself wholeheartedly to sin because you're a new person. That's impossible to present yourself to sin. You can present your members, but you can't present yourself because a Christian never can do that. He's not able to do that because he's a new person. But you can present your whole self wholeheartedly, 100% to God. Present yourselves to God. That's the first thing. And then present your members as instruments of righteousness. So he says, present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. It's the very same thing that we saw back in verse 12, that where Paul separates you from your mortal body. And he says to you, don't let sin reign in your mortal body. He makes a separation there. Well, he's saying to us now, present yourselves to God. You can't present your whole self to sin. That's not something you can do as a Christian. Well, we've thrown out a lot of things here to think about, but uh, one thing I want to conclude with, I think, is this, and that is, uh, he's telling us to do this not just in general, but in, in details. In other words, instead of just saying, Lord, I present myself to you, It's right for us to say, Lord, I present myself to You and I present my eyes to You. And I present my hands to You. And I present, like the song, like Havergal's song. I mean, to consciously think about, just like if there's bad thoughts in my mind, to think, wait a minute. There's one of my members that's being used for unrighteousness. And you take that back. You You don't allow that. You don't let sin reign in that part of your mortal body. And the same way with our with our eyes. Wait a minute, I'm not supposed to use these members in that way, this member of my body in that way. But you see, you can take take every aspect of your life and present it individually to God. 
And so you're not going to let sin reign in your mortal body. You're not going to let any part of your body go along with that. And so, individually, it it means something. He's talking here about individually giving our members to God as instruments of righteousness. Well, I hope this is maybe a little clearer. Lord willing, we'll go on next time look at verse 14. Well, let's pray. Lord, we are so thankful that for the Christian You said that we are those who are alive from the dead and that we have passed out of the old realm of sin and we're alive in a new realm. And we're thankful, Lord, that the old self is gone, crucified, dead, and gone forever. You've made us new creatures. And we're thankful that You address us as separate from the sin that tries to reign in our mortal bodies. And we pray, Lord, that You'd help us to be renewed in the spirit of our minds and to put to death uh, the members that are upon the earth and to, through the Spirit, mortify the deeds of the body. Help us, Lord, even today to present each member of our body, our, our thoughts, our minds, our lips, our tongues, our eyes, every aspect, Lord, of our lives. Help us to present our bodies to You as a living sacrifice and to not be conformed to this world, but, but, but to be transformed by the renewing of our minds that we might prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Help, Lord, make up for the failings and lackings in what I've shared here by Your Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, amen. Let's be dismissed and